Greg Adancho, WMBD, Greg Batten, Dan DiOrio. Tuesdays at 740, we talk with gentlemen from the University of Illinois College of Medicine here in Peoria, infectious disease specialist, Dr. Doug Casper. Good morning, Doug. Hi, good morning. Uh, let's get right at this. I was a little surprised this morning when I uh, heard the news that OSF has said, uh, please mask up again. Our numbers are coming up. I know a couple of days ago we had back to medium levels in a couple of counties around here, Tazewell and uh, Peoria, and now the hospital. Somebody told me anecdotally that the other day they went to the Social Security Administration office, and you have to mask in that office. Uh, just give us your thoughts on where we are. What the, what's the bounce up? Yeah, this is uh, extreme caution. Uh, I, w- I would not say this reflects any sort of change in information or, or prediction of you know a wide swinging increase in COVID cases or anything like that. This comes off of CDC community transmission data, which is updated uh, weekly, and there will be this kind of bumping around where the data goes up and the data goes up, the numbers go up, the numbers go down. And for institutions that are um, that have high-risk areas, inpatient hospital settings, and then maybe congregate living homes, things like that, you'll see where this policy kind of changes back and forth, masks come and masks go. But none of this reflects any sort of wide change as far as uh, COVID parameters or new information. How do we uh, – so you say that's based on CDC uh – uh, I can't remember the words you actually use, but um, uh, so we transmission levels. But if we're not testing much, if we're not, re- you know, if I go home and I don't even have a home test anymore, uh, how are we getting that information? Yeah, the only places that really are testing are those that are kind of like points of entry into high risk. And so that would be like hospital settings. So, okay. You know, hospitals when they're admitting patients, will still uh, perform COVID testing, especially if the patient has uh, pertinent findings like uh, symptoms of infection. And so those are being used as surrogates for the community, meaning, like you said, we aren't testing at all like we used to with university or travel or any of those areas. And so we're using these surrogate markers to predict what's happening in the community. And because of that, the number is relatively lower so you're even it's a lower snapshot, and so that you always have to think about. It can change more quickly. So one week, the lower number of people, you can get a little bit higher result, and then maybe the next week it'll come down. But again, this isn't reflective of an increase in hospitalizations. It's more of a predictive value. Yeah, I hate to be redundant, but not everyone listens, uh, you know, every week religiously. But, you know, New York and other big metropolitan areas have been kind of tracking it because they know people aren't getting tested. They're getting sick but not getting tested through wastewater samples. Not perfect, but it actually is a tool that a lot of cities are using. Do we use that here in central Illinois? Um, Yeah, there have been points along the way where where wastewater samples have been tested. And, uh, you know, the last three years I been a part of a different, a couple different phone conversations with regional, uh, regional areas. But I don't know to answer if it's something that's being done on, you know, like a regular basis or not. Uh, usually, you see it as kind of like a point in time. Um, so, you know, every so often, someone will look at a point in time and monitor. My guess is in bigger cities, there's probably more formal program as far as monitoring. But I, I'm unsure at the, at the frequency that it's being looked at. Dr. Casper, yesterday I heard a story that I didn't quite understand how it would work, that 
Uh, in fact, I think it was our own Julia Bradley that had the story that part of the, the new way of uh, dealing with COVID is through telehealth uh, and teledoc kind of things. I don't know if I'm saying brand names there, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, how does that work? Yeah, telehealth is wonderful. Um, telehealth is remote, so we can now do uh, medical visits via similar to FaceTime. It's a medical version of FaceTime. Okay. But the encounter can be done through your medical record. Uh, the person uh, is remote. It can be any distance, <clears throat> so as long as you have the capability of video. And what it's doing is it's really bringing in our rural markets, uh, especially for people that have difficulty with travel in the winter or they may have um, you know, lack of mode of, of transport. We can get people seen from across a much wider region. And so uh, many specialties are participating in telehealth. Uh, it's become robust in central Illinois because of our commitment to rural health through our training, medical school and residency training, and through the hospital systems. And so if people haven't experienced a telehealth visit yet, it's likely they will in the coming years if they access medical care. I don't want to drag you into the political battle that's going on, but a second agency, now the energy agency, is pointing to the possibility that uh, COVID came from a lab in Wuhan, China. Uh, others are saying, no, it came from a wet market. Uh, politics aside, as an infectious disease specialist, does it matter to you and your colleagues at least to understand the origins of where this came from? Uh, it, it matters in the sense that if there was a lab-based component to this, then that uh, sig- signifies a significant protocol issue, and that is, you know, that would be something of importance to understand. Um, it was always peculiar. You know, coronavirus research prior to the pandemic was not <clears throat> widely done, and one of the foremost research institutions is in Wuhan, and so it was always quite peculiar that. An outbreak started in a part of the world that has one of very few research labs. But mm-hmm. then, you know, to confirm something like this, you would, you know, the, the original genetic strain of the virus was published in late December of 2019, and so you would have to have the lab volunteer to give some of their specimens and see if those match. Like that's how you would prove uh, a genetic match of what happened. But that is probably uh, not possible anymore, and my guess is that information is <clears throat> probably gone. But it is it was always quite peculiar, and so where, where do it really matter now outside of the political aspect would be um, safety of lab-based research is, is important. And so if there was an issue with that, uh, understanding what happened would be very important for the other labs to ensure that nothing like this ever happens sure. again. I have two questions from listeners. I'm going to kind of combine them. Uh, one goes like this. Last fall, I got my flu and COVID vaccine. I'm wondering if the COVID vaccine I received in October will protect me until next fall, since we had to get them every six months before. I still wear my mask and so on and so forth. A little concerned. And then the second question is, do we still need to get COVID boosters? So I'll let you combine those answers. Yeah, there. so... Um, COVID, any vaccine that's available currently for COVID, whether it's a vaccine or a booster, is, is thought to be equivalent. So there, we don't differentiate between you know, the booster and non-booster Got anymore. Um, so is any shot of a COVID vaccine, are they the same? Uh, the major protection is thought to last very long. Uh, the area, the benefit you get from the initial burst or the antibody portion of it is probably about four to five months. 
but there is other ways of immunity that are stimulated that last much longer. So the answer to the question is, based on your risk factors, if you're older or if you think that you may have had a less than um, full, full response to a prior vaccine series, I would stay up to date with boosters on a, on a regular interval. If you're somebody who doesn't fit into that category, um, then it's, it's of less clear value. But certainly you can choose to continue to receive them. It's not a hindrance. It's just that the protection between whether you've had prior vaccine and a natural infection is very strong uh, for an indefinite period going forward. Got it. In wrapping things up, this is more a statement than a question, but, you know, with my immunity being compromised, I'm, you know, even going to the store, I can stay 30 feet away from people, but will wear a mask. Is that, uh, you know, you go back and read and uh, we there's a lot of speculation that COVID hit in December. We didn't recognize it right away till January and formalize all the precautions and warnings. But wearing a mask, if you're immunocompromised, you never know when the next virus is going to come around and, and, and if it's going to be caught right away. It just seems to make sense. And now it's more normal for people who are immunocompromised to wear masks at stores. Yeah, very well said. I agree with that. Dr. Doug Casper, always good to talk to you. Have a great week, sir. We appreciate your time and expertise.